Welcome to the Lawyerist Podcast with Sam Glover and Aaron Street. Each week, Lawyerist brings you advice and interviews to help you build a more successful law practice in today's challenging and constantly changing legal market. And now, here are Sam and Aaron. Hi, I'm Sam Glover. And I'm Aaron Street, and this is episode 146 of the Lawyerist Podcast, part of the Legal Talk Network. Today, we're talking with Laura Genovese about her experience as one of the first limited legal shit, <laughs> limited licensed legal technicians, LLLTs in Washington State. You can just say triple LTs. Yeah, or just legal technicians. Yeah, I, you'll find out that that's just fine. Triple LTs, LLLTs. I think we'll clear it all up soon. Branding. <laughs> Today's podcast is sponsored by Clio Legal Practice Management Software. Clio makes running your law firm easier. Try it for free today at Clio.com. Today's podcast is also sponsored by Ruby Receptionists, and it's smart, charming receptionists who are perfect for small firms. Visit callruby.com slash lawyerist to get a risk-free trial with Ruby. So Sam, I think it was like two years ago on this podcast, which is a crazy thing to be able to say that we've been doing this long enough that I can say something happened two years ago, but I <laughs> totally. feel like it was about two years ago on this right. podcast that we were talking about LLLTs or whatever. Pick one and go with it. <laughs> and I put forward my thesis about them, which is that like a whole bunch of lawyers around the country are all up in arms about this new limited license thing and how it's going to be the death of the profession. And I think to a large part, almost everyone who hates the concept hates it because of some stupid version of protectionism where they think it's going right. to ruin what it means to be a lawyer or where they just don't want anyone threatening lawyers or something that I think is pretty dumb because it's not focused at all on what's best for clients. My thesis is that, at least has been up until today's conversation, has been that it doesn't really make sense because the structure of the economics of LLLT, triple L. <laughs> Legal technicians. <laughs> of legal technicians is that they're going to have to run solo small practices just like a solo small lawyer and that they're going to have education costs not quite as high as well, law Actually, school. there is only one difference in costs. I mean, like you brought that up before and you're totally right. She has to pay malpractice insurance. She needs an office, all those things. The only difference is the education cost, which is considerable. Sure. That's student, it. student loans cost a lot of yeah. money, but student loan costs are not the driving function of a lawyer's billable hour. And right. therefore, the idea that structurally this can offer a different price point for consumers to access legal services just doesn't really make sense to me. But all of that said... I'm really excited to hear from Laura so that we can prove or disprove my theory. Uh, I am too. And she and I absolutely talked about that angle on it. The one thing we didn't talk about, which I think is maybe worth raising now, is she pointed out to me before we started recording that she can't charge as much as a lawyer. So like even if all of her business structure, overhead expenses, even if the economic model is the same, she said, you know what? We're not lawyers. We have a hard time convincing somebody to pay anywhere near the same price that they would a lawyer. But that doesn't mean that there's a sustainable business there. And I think we'll hear more from her about what she thinks that means and why she's optimistic. So here we are.
My name is Laura Genovese, and I'm a newly licensed legal technician in Seattle, Washington. Hi, Laura. Thanks so much for being on the podcast today. Thank you. And by legal technician, you mean the awkwardly named, you're an LLLT? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Uh, the official name is Limited Licensed Legal Technician, and a lot of people have referred to them as triple LTs. But most of those in practice are calling themselves legal technicians or even law tech is another one I've heard. I'm so thrilled to hear that, actually, because it has been so awkward to try and use that abbreviation in in speech. So um, legal technician it is from here on out. No more triple LTs. Okay, legal technician works for me. (laughs) So you were licensed about a year ago. Is that right? No, actually, I was uh, licensed in May of this year. I got my order from the Supreme Court of Washington. And um, I've just launched my practice in September, and I've got my office, and I'm seeing clients and working as a um, solo. Very cool. So uh, let's kind of back up to the beginning of that and talk about what a legal technician is and what does that training look like? How how do you get your license and that sort of thing? Okay. Well, a legal technician um, is someone who is licensed, and currently my understanding is Many states are looking at this, but um, I believe Washington is, uh, we're sort of the pioneers in this. And we, it's someone who's licensed by the state. Um, We're overseen by the uh, Bar Association and we have to have a minimum associate level degree. However, I have a bachelor's. There's a core education, which are 45 credit hours at an ABA approved program. In, you know, there's a listing of courses that are, are necessary. We also get a practice area education, and currently our practice area is in family law. And these classes are done at the University of Washington Law School, and they're done online so that everybody across the state can participate. And there are real-time online classes that you have to show up. For me, they were Tuesdays and Thursday evenings. Um, Also, you need to take an exam. There's uh, a core education exam, which is the paralegal core competency exam and a professional responsibility exam. Our Hmm. RPCs parallel the attorney RPCs uh, pretty closely. But you do have your own. We do have our own, yes. And then we also have a practice area exam, which is like a mini bar exam administered through the Washington State Bar. And the third piece of it is the experience. And we need to have 3,000 hours of substantive law-related experience, uh, which is about a year and a half full time. Yeah, that's a long time. It is. And you have to be supervised by a licensed attorney and they have to sign off. uh, They have to sign a declaration saying that you did do 3,000 hours of substantive law-related work. So like if you were interning with an asshole, you'd want to get out of there because they might just not (laughs) let you go in the end. (laughs) You know what? Actually, there have been um, people whose attorneys have not signed off on their hours, which is a little bit tricky. So I think that's something that Triple OT board, here I'm saying that again, the legal technician (laughs) board is uh, looking into in terms of making it mandatory to have the attorneys sign off on hours that are actually worked. Yeah, I could see that being a problem where you basically have a a private lawyer just sort of vetoing the legal technician's schooling. Right, right. Well, and I think the idea is (laughs) 
I mean, I think what the legal technicians who are in training have learned is to be upfront with that right at mm-hmm. the beginning and say, hey, you know, I, I'm in this program. I plan to complete it. Here's what the declaration looks like. Are you willing to sign off on this? Yeah. Okay. So you take your mini bar exam, you do your supervision time under a lawyer, and, and it's only after that that you get your license. Right. You, you have to actually, well, in addition to that, there's a background check that has to be done. I got fingerprinted and... Um, okay, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. There's also a, like a character and fitness piece. So you have to submit that to the bar actually before you even sit the exam to make sure that if you were to pass that you are someone who is uh, able to practice law. So around the country, everybody's biggest concern is whether or not they need to report that they used to smoke weed on their character and fitness exam. I assume in Washington, that's no longer an issue. You know, I really couldn't speak to that. Um, but All right, but so, you know, seeing as it's legal in our state, I don't know yeah. how they would come down on that. Now that you're licensed, what can you do? Well, what I am allowed to do is I can assist clients in terms of moving their family law matters forward. Um, Specifically, I can do child support orders. I can do uh, child support modifications. I can do dissolutions, legal separations. Um, I can do some domestic violence action. If somebody came to you and wanted your help drafting a dissolution for the two spouses, you could assist them with that. Can you negotiate it? I could assist one of them. I, I Obviously, I can't take on both people as my clients. I mean, that sort of would be... Um, Something that wouldn't, I mean, any attorney couldn't take on people who potentially have um, opposing interests. But um, I mean, I'm not an attorney, obviously, I'm a legal yep. technician, but it falls under the same uh, RPCs that I, I, I really can't do that. But you can, but you could assist one side and do you just talk to them or can you negotiate with the other party or the other lawyer as well or the other legal technician on the other side? I am prohibited from negotiating on my client's behalf. Um, That also falls sort of under the attorney purview. What I can do is I communicate through that my client. So my client could say, well, my uh, former spouse or my soon-to-be ex-spouse says this, or his attorney says that. So it's a little bit of a coaching. pass-through, but a little bit of coaching. And and I state that clearly in my engagement agreement that that is my client's responsibility to me to communicate with me whenever they get information or whenever they get communication from the opposing party. Because technically, my clients, um, as far as filing documents, they're pro se. I mean, I have to sign every court document with my license number and, you know, my signature, but the client is really pro se. Hmm. Interesting. And you are able to have ownership in a law firm or have your own firm, which is not a technically a law firm and legal technicians firm. Right. So um, under under our practice rules, it's APR 28, if anybody really wants to take the time to, <laughs> to look that up. Um I can't remember specifically which section that is, so don't quote me on that. But um, we can either share a firm with an attorney and those two people would come to some sort of uh, agreement or legal technicians could own a firm together, two or more. I know um, I know of two who have started their own firm together and they're working to help clients. Or like myself, you could hang out your own shingle and work as an independent legal technician. So so then what does your firm look like? Uh, I assume it's an LLC or PLLC or something like that. It is. It's a PLLC. 
and I have to set up an IOLTA account just like uh, an attorney would. Um, I have to, I use practice management software. I don't know if I can say which one I use, use? but um, (laughs) I like Clio. That's the one I'm most familiar with and that's what works for me. Um, And I, you know, I, I have my client sign an engagement agreement with me that clearly outlines the work of what I plan to help them with. And part of my job, too, is screening clients because I really have to make sure that when someone works with me that they understand what I can do for them. And if, and if something moves beyond my scope of practice, it's up to me to explain to them why I can't continue to help them and recommend that they see uh, a full-service attorney. You know, I mean... The way it's you're doing limited scope representation in the same way that lots of lawyers do it. It's just that you're not the necessarily the one limiting the scope. It's regulated to be limited by the stage. Right. It is. It is regulated. And, you know, the thing is, though, that it is always changing. And, um, you know, I, there are things that are pending to, to see if we can expand our scope slightly in terms of being able, for example, to go to court with a client, not to speak on their behalf, but to sort of be there to help with procedural issues. One example I can think of is someone who had not gone to a hearing with their client and the client was told, asked if they wanted to continue it. Mm. And, you know, of course, being there pro se, she said, oh, yeah, I want to continue. So then she didn't understand what happened when it was moved two weeks later, because it's that terminology that someone who's not in law would not understand. Oh. So <laughs> she meant, I want to go ahead and do it. <laughs> yes, I want to keep going is what she thought, but it meant continue it as to, you know, a later date. Yeah. And um, so one of the, the areas that might be changing in our scope is being able to go to a, a hearing with a client just to be able to explain procedural things or to um, in the courtroom. Right. Or so. So say a commissioner might come up with, you know, a ruling on what's going on in that hearing to be there to help write that up so that, you know, the client understands how what has been said gets translated into documents for the court that are enforceable and that type of thing. How do you describe what you do in your marketing? Like, what what is the concise way that you would explain to a prospective client what you do and maybe how you distinguish that from what a lawyer can do for them? Or does, or does that just always have to be a long conversation? <laughs> I was just going to say concise. Hmm. <laughs> no, they're, they're, <laughs> I mean, what's the billboard version? <laughs> well, I think <laughs> I think the billboard version is give me a call and we can talk about it because I think um, I really need to assess the client's needs and what I can help them with before I decide um, to sign an engagement agreement with them. And I also can explain to someone that, hey, I can help you up to this point. And if you'd like, you can see, you know, I have attorneys that I work with um, and they can sort of guide you in this other part that I'm not allowed to help you with. For Mm. example, division of real estate or quadros. I can't uh, help a client with that, but I can refer them to an attorney to do that. And do you just refer them to an attorney or do you do you get the attorney to help with that piece of it and, and keep the client? I guess I'm wondering, like, do your clients have a tendency to have to go to an attorney in the middle of the representation for something else or just to leave you and then go to an attorney? Well, I mean, most of my clients are working people. Most of my clients are, you know, people of um, 
middle means. And yes, there are some in Seattle still, um, believe it or not. Um, <laughs> I mean, I work, I work evenings and, and weekends even to accommodate some of these working people. So money is clearly a concern to them. So I think that they want limited expense with an attorney. And I think if an attorney gives me written instructions, I can do some of the work myself as long as I have written instructions from an attorney. Let's take a quick break to hear from our sponsors and we come back. We can dive into money a little bit more because I'm really curious to hear your thoughts on that piece of how this all works out on a practical level. So we'll be right back. Imagine what you could do with an extra eight hours per week. You could invest in marketing your firm. You could spend more time helping clients in need or you could catch your daughter's soccer game. That's how much time legal professionals save with Clio, the world's leading practice management software. With Clio, tracking time, billing, and matter management are fast and easy, giving you more time to focus on what really matters. And Clio is a complete practice management platform with plenty of tools and over 50 integrations to help you automate daily tasks such as document generation and court calendaring. See how the right software can make it easier to manage your practice. Try Clio for free today at Clio.com. This podcast is supported by Ruby Receptionists. As a matter of fact, Ruby answers our phones at Lawyerist, and my firm was a paying Ruby customer before that. Here's what I love about Ruby. When I'm in the middle of something, I hate to be interrupted, so when the phone rings, it annoys me, and that often carries over into the conversation I have after I pick up the phone, which is why I'm better off not answering my own phone. Instead, Ruby answers the phone, and if the person on the other end asks for me, a friendly, cheerful receptionist from Ruby calls me and asks if I want them to put the call through. It's a buffer that gives me a minute to let go of my annoyance and be a better human being during the call. If you want to be a better human being on the phone, give Ruby a try. Go to callruby.com slash lawyerist to sign up, and Ruby will waive the $95 setup fee. If you aren't happy with Ruby for any reason, you can get your money back during your first three weeks. I'm pretty sure you'll stick around, but since there is no risk, you might as well try. Okay, we're back. And Laura, so one of the things that I've been trying to figure out is how a legal technician can afford to be cheaper than a lawyer. Because we hear that a lot, that legal technicians will help close the access to justice gap. They'll help increase access to justice by lowering the cost of getting legal help. And all of that stuff, I get it, and it makes sense. Um, Cost is certainly a factor in, in why it's hard to get justice for some people. But most of lawyers' expenses aren't tied to the fact that they're lawyers, right? Like, you still have to have an office, and so does a lawyer. You have to have malpractice insurance, so does a lawyer, although maybe yours is less expensive. I don't know. You know, you need practice management software. Most of the overhead that a lawyer has to bear, you also have to bear. And yet many lawyers, I mean, are not making, you know, a killing doing what they're doing. And so I'm wondering how can you how can you charge less? How does that work? It's <laughs> well, a big question. I, but. <laughs> well, I mean, I'm trying to figure out myself on how it's going to work exactly. But I think the primary thing is I am not under a huge amount of student loan debt, number one. Mm-hmm. Um, in order to become a to get all the education component of becoming a legal technician, um, I would say that um, you know, including fees for taking the exams, it probably is about ballpark $12,000. And so when you're talking about that versus, you know, eight, 10 times well, that, that amount, it's a factor of 10. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so, um, you know, number one, I, I don't have that component to deal with. I mean, I do, like you said, I have malpractice insurance. I have to maintain my license with the bar. Um, I have overhead for rent and blah, blah, blah. But 
I'm hoping that it's really through volume. I mean, I, I've talked to a lot of clients. I plant a lot of seeds and I'm hoping that, you know, that's going to help me out. In the future, I'd like to do to move to a flat fee model once I get a sense of how long it's going to take me to do different components of, of what I can do, you know, child support, um, parenting plan, you know, that type of thing, kind of move to a flat fee model. Um, but I'm not there yet. I mean, I guess in theory, limited scope might mean more predictable, in which case you can potentially automate it. You can use document assembly. You can quote flat fees. And yeah, maybe it's easier for you to find efficiencies in the way you work than somebody who's, you know, doing beginning to end style of representation. Exactly. We have a great resource, and I think many bar associations do. It's it's law office practice management. It's LOMAP is what we call it mm-hmm. here at the Washington State Bar, and they've been invaluable in really helping um, find some great tools and resources for automation. Um, so that's really been something that has been my goal. And I'm, while I'm not as busy as I would like, the time that I'm not, I'm, I'm really doing a lot of that work to make sure that when it does happen, because I'm sure that it will, I'm confident that I'm ready to roll with and, and hit the ground running. Do you, I, I mean, I realize you've been doing this for just some months now. How's it going? Like, how's business? You know, actually, a business is going well. I mean, I I was actually kind of surprised. And when I tell people about what I do, and I, it is hard to do an elevator speech. It has to be, I think of it as a very tall building because it's, it's a little bit of a mouthful. But people are very excited. And I work in a private office in a co-working space. So there's a lot of networking that happens within the the co-working and people are very excited. So I'm going to do a presentation with uh, the group here. They have a lunch and learn thing that happens once once a month. And I think a lot are of... You, are you in WeWork or Industrious or... Um, it's it's one in Seattle called The Riveter. Oh, cool. Yeah. It's, it's sort of an independent type of uh, office share environment. Because legal technicians were brought about in part because of the movement to try and work on access to justice. Do you, do you feel like you have a sense for, is that working? Well, you know, one factor that's been difficult is um, the Bar Association hasn't done a lot of promotion of legal technicians because currently there are only 25 of us that are licensed to practice across the state of Washington. And we live in a fairly large state divided by mountains. And my sense is that if people really get the idea that there is a less expensive alternative to just basic, straightforward family law problems, that there won't be someone to serve them in their county. I suppose the bar's interest in marketing legal technicians is maybe a little bit conflicted, which makes me kind of wonder, like, what? so what sort of reception have you gotten from the bar, from lawyers, from the bar association in general? Like, what does that look like? Well, I would say for the most part, um, the Washington State Bar has been really supportive. We're full members of the bar. You know, we, we pay a licensing fee every year. Um, some of the county bars have not been as receptive, which is a little disappointing. Unfortunately, um, I'm working, I'm trying to do a charm campaign <laughs> to get the King County Bar <laughs> to allow me to join them. I mean, I paid my dues and then I got it sent back to me, which is a little sad. But, you know, I think 
there have been lots of attorneys who have reached out to me to find out more about what we do and the opportunity to work together. And I think those are the attorneys that I like to work with and they get they will get referrals from me and they send me referrals. So in some ways, if people really were to take a look at the program in general and the niche that we do fill, frankly, it's better for them to work with someone who has a guide versus working with a pro se party because that's a tough ethical line sometimes how much communication you can have with a pro se party, you know, an opposing pro se party. So I think attorneys who know how the program really works, I think would be surprised that we fill an important gap. I almost feel like you're a doula for divorce kids, uh, <laughs> like for divorcing spouses, right? Like nobody, there are no, uh, there are no uh, OBGYNs who went out of business because of the doula movement. Um, and lots of people want doulas. So you're, you're like a divorce doula. Well, kind of. I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know what we're giving somebody, birth to, but sure. <laughs> before we publish this podcast, make sure divorcedoula.com is available. <laughs> well, in some ways too, it's like a nurse practitioner role as well, because if you have a sore yeah. throat, if you have a sore throat, you don't need a surgeon. You can go in and see the nurse practitioner. They can give you what you need and and then move you on your way. But if it's more complicated and they think that maybe there's more of an issue, then yeah, you get referred on to a surgeon or a, you know, someone who can take care of that issue for you. You could call yourself a divorce coach if you're uncomfortable <laughs> with doula. But. Yeah, a divorce coach, I think that's a different role. I, we have those here too, yeah. and I think that's a, a, a little bit different. But yeah, I, I see what you're saying. I like divorce doula. <laughs> so what's the what's the future for the legal technician program? Like, uh, is there talk of expanding it into new practice areas or um, letting you do more besides what we've already talked about? What, what's in what's in the future? Well, yeah, you know, there actually is a committee of the Bar Association that is looking at um, expanding our practice areas. They've looked at several different ones and they've looked at estate planning. And I think that was not something they wanted to pursue. Um, they've looked at landlord tenant, but what makes that one difficult is if people can't really afford to pay their rent, they really can't afford, unfortunately, um, to have paid legal help. But I think, and they've also looked at immigration. So they're hmm. looking at areas of greatest need and then moving forward. So it's a work in progress. I think it's something that will continue to evolve. And it's our job as pioneers in this new legal profession to, to keep on top of that. If, well, let's say that happened. Let's say they, they open up immigration or, or real estate or something like that. Do you have to go back to school and do it over? Or is there just a practice area module that you can take to expand your license, basically? Oh, that's exactly it, Sam. It's just a practice module. It'd be another set of classes through the University of Washington, once again. But all those classes are taught by other law school professors in our state. Hmm. So, for example, uh, when I did my practice in family law, we had professors from Gonzaga Law School in Spokane. We had a professor from Seattle University School of Law. So it's, it's kind of nice because it really is a cooperative effort. And, I mean, I feel... It's exciting to be on the cutting edge of this new legal profession because we are providing licensed, trained help to people who really need it. And I have to note that almost all of the legal technicians that are currently licensed do some sort of volunteer work in terms of working in legal clinics or 
we're actually I'm actually leading a committee to form our own legal technician legal clinic, which will be in South Seattle, um, hopefully soon, to be able to help people with specific things like parenting plans or child support worksheets. So, I mean, it's it's really exciting to be on the cutting edge. Very cool. Well, thanks for telling us about it today, and I really appreciate learning more about the Legal Technician Program and about your practice. Do we call it a practice? Yes, it is a practice. Services? <laughs> it's a limited practice, but yes, it's a practice. Well, thanks. It's been really helpful. I, I know a lot of us, practically everybody knows about the program, but I, I really enjoyed getting to know more about it specifically in the context of your work. So thanks so much, Laura. All right. Thank you for having me. Make sure to catch next week's episode of The Lawyerist Podcast by subscribing to the show in your favorite podcast app. And please leave a rating to help other people find our show. You can find the notes for today's episode on lawyerist.com slash podcast. The views expressed by the participants are their own and are not endorsed by Legal Talk Network. Nothing said in this podcast is legal advice for you.